0: or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything Is Personal. And today we have a very special guest, Internationally known, I'm not going to mention the instrument yet, but internationally known player, songwriter, recording artist, Mr. Kevin Roth. Thank you for being on. Thanks, Thanks for having me. And the reason why I didn't mention the, the instrument uh, that you're internationally known for playing, because I want to dig a little bit deeper in that. But uh, I'll, I'll leave it to uh, a couple of questions that I have down the road. First, before we get going, um, just to learn a little bit about you. Where did you grow up? Philadelphia. Okay. What part of Philadelphia?
2: Well, it was I, I was raised in a place called Overland, no. Uh Overbrook? The Overbrook <laughs> yeah, Overbrook Park, yeah. Overbrook Park. I lived in oh, uh, yeah, Overland Park later in my life, but yes, it was Overbrook Park.
1: Yeah. It, you, you know, it's it's funny because when you tell people, "Oh, Philadelphia," the only other people that are from Philadelphia, they're the ones that ask you what part? Cuz usually it's like Oh, you're Philly, you're Philly, but no, 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 no. You gotta find out it's South Philly, North Philly, Northeast Philly, because yeah. I I grew up in Philly too, even though I, I'm in LA now. So we definitely have that uh connection. And uh what was your childhood like? Uh I you know I'm f- pretty familiar with Overbrook Park. I don't think maybe we can paint a picture for our audience what what sort of the neighbor was like. Uh what was your childhood like? Were you uh did you have both parents? Do you have siblings? you can kind of uh, go into that background a little bit.
2: Well, the Overbrook Park was, you know, a suburb, I I suppose. It was nothing extraordinary one way or the other. Um, I came from what I would consider a highly dysfunctional family. Had two older sisters. Uh, My mom was sick for most of my childhood, and she passed away when I was 13. Then my dad remarried not long after and then we moved to Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. So um, I wouldn't say that it was anything re- remarkable. But I always liked Philly, actually. I liked South Philly a lot. Yeah. Because I'm a big foodie. That's a big Italian food place. And I used to hang out in... Um, where all those hippies used to go? Uh, South Street, I think. Yeah. South Street, Yeah. They used to actually have a music shop, a dulcimer shop there that I used to uh, hang out at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had a few
1: music shops, and they had a Tower Records there, which was uh, yeah. I was, a, I, was in, I worked at Tower Records, so ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Was, uh, I don't think people know what a Tower Records is these days <laughs> anymore. We have to explain to people that is a a place where you bought like vinyl records and CDs and cassettes and. Eight tracks, probably, and all those things. But I guess vinyl is back, back in now. So going back, if you're open to talking about it, you know, having you said your mom was sick, and you had older sisters, and your mom passed away uh, when you were thirteen. That's a that's a very impactful age at thirteen. You know, like uh, uh, you know, I'm Jewish, so thirteen was uh, your bar mitzvah, and my mom said, you know, you changed. Because you thought you were a man and you become a real man, it's like, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of things that are going on uh, at 13. It's it's such a it's such a it's such a like impactful, like I said, age to be able to have all these emotional things with all the hormones that are happening. Uh, how did it affect you? Uh,
2: well, she was around for my bar mitzvah. I'm Jewish too, um, so I must have been closer to 14. Okay.
1: Well, regardless, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, it's still it's still that age. Like, yeah. what, what was what was the impact? Like, uh, I'm sure it was a tremendous thing. But she was sick for a while, so you must have had a little bit of prep uh, for that. But it's, it's still a a, a com- very traumatic experience, I'm sure.
2: Well, it's very frightening when a parent uh, is sick. She had a brain aneurysm you know, to to have ambulances come to the house, you know, it's very frightening. She died, actually, in North Carolina of a heart attack. Um, And what I remember feeling when she died, besides confusion, was a lot of relief because uh, she was not a happy lady. And, you know, there's no way that a parent who is sick Uh, for a lot of some kids childhood can give them the love and the affection and everything that they need because they're not feeling well, you know what I mean? The poor woman, you know, she had all kinds of issues and, um, I was also not expected. I wasn't a planned child. So I, I think I was born four years after my middle sister, um, But I think the real the real trauma for me was that my father met his second wife just two months after my mom died, and then they got married quickly. So it was like boom boom. wasn't a wise decision, I don't think, on his part, but it was his decision, and you know that. that, There was, you know, in in my book Between the Notes, I talk about that time period. Yeah,
1: Uh, that's why I wanted you to expand on that a little bit because I find that. I find that time period to be fascinating and also how it can affect you as an adult throughout your life. I mean, your relationship with, with your parent, uh, who you're not getting love and affection as, as a man, and that affects other relationships in your life. And then you have a new mother figure who comes in your life, is not your mother, and the relationship that your, your father has with her and also with you. You know that that can be, uh, you know, that's that can be a a very, um, I don't know, traumatic experience in your life. I would say.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was always close to my dad, and what really saved me was that I was musical and spiritual at the same time. So right after my mom died is when I uh, was introduced to the dulcimer, which really started my career. Um, Because I got the dulcimer when I was fourteen, and. Got my first record deal when I was 16
1: on soccer. All right, so l- let's talk about it because you're an internationally known dulcimer uh, player. And uh, first of all, dulcimer. I mean, you know, kids pick up a guitar and they pick up, you know, piano and and you know, I play the sax, bass, dulcimer. What is a dulcimer? I mean, I, I know what it is, but just so we can define it for. the audience because i'm sure some people don't know what that instrument is the string instrument and how do you get involved with the the dulcimer
2: well this is on video as well right so i mean this is a little tiny dulcimer this is what one looks like this is like a, a almost like a toy one but it's it's a real one it's just it's called a soprano and i saw the dulcimer at a party And a meditation gathering that um, I attended by Destiny. And I saw a girl there named Ann Stokes. She played the dulcimer. And I just knew that that was it. It was, you know, I liked the dulcimer. I liked Ann. And and then Ann was getting out of being a folk singer, or trying to be a folk singer in her young 20s. And she went... uh, she had found a um, a Sufi fellowship called Bawa Mahayadine, who was a kind of a guru. And so I followed her to Bawa Mahayyadine fellowship and got involved spiritually with all that. So I had music that was keeping me glued together. I had spirituality, which kept me um, guessing because I knew from a very early age that this, this wasn't it. You know, there's something bigger going on. And that's what really saved me in amongst all. It was like my lifeboat in, in, on stormy seas. Yeah.
1: But I, I, I'm going back to this because I, I'm just trying to kind of paint the picture in my own head. You're 14. And how do you pursue the spiritual practice? Of right now, I'm in Los Angeles. So, you know, being in in meditation and doing sound baths, it's normal. But Philly, you know, it's, I I remember talking to my friends about meditation. They're like, they didn't have the same reaction or the same response as, uh, you know, people in LA do now. So,
2: well, that's why I live here in California. It's more, well, it's more (laughs) accepted everywhere now. Yeah. It's just destiny, it's just kind of how it plays out. Um, But you go with your parent, like
1: with with your dad, like how how did you start this whole spiritual journey as a kid or were you seeking something because, uh, you know, your relation with your mom or lack thereof, were you seeking uh, out? Let me, let me use me as an example. Maybe this, this will help, uh, with uh, a question. I, uh, I was seeking something. I would read books when I was a kid. I didn't have a best relation with my parents and I would sit in my room and I would read Dianetics. And I would read the encyclopedia. I would read all these books because I was seeking something, but I didn't know what to do with that. And I wasn't telling anybody because people would think I'm weird, you know, because I'm not reading whatever everybody else is reading. Uh, so I was seeking something that was, and I didn't realize it was spiritual practice or, uh, or you know, it, Indian philosophy, Hindu philosophy. I, I didn't know what that was, but I knew that whatever I was being uh, raised with wasn't really connecting with me fully. So that was my journey, but I didn't really implement that journey until I got more comfortable as an adult to start visiting. You know, Actually, I'll tell you, my moment was when I, w- I went to Temple University and I took a course called Intellectual Heritage, if I remember correctly. So we got a chance to read like the Old Testament, New Testament, the Quran, the Book of Job, like all these different things and discuss them in class. And I'm like, wow, you know, there's all these things and they have commonalities. So it allowed me to you know, connect more to that on a literal sense and then pursue, you know, different spiritual practices just because of my interest. So I just wanted to, you know, recognize what your journey was uh, through that process.
2: I was just always seeking before I saw the dulcimer. And then when I met Anne, um, the dulcimer just attracted me. And Anne attracted me. There's something about Anne that I thought was very uh, folksy, Joni Mitchell-y. <laughs> and so I just followed her to the fellowship. And that's when I just met this, uh, this teacher, Guru Baha. And um, that sort of started me down a path, but I was very young. I was fourteen, fifteen, so I, I didn't really get in really, really get into the whole spiritual thing until uh, I mean deeply into it. And then I now teach it uh, until about two thousand fifteen, two thousand sixteen.
1: What was music something that was uh, prevalent in your household, or
2: uh, was your Oh, no nope, I, was, I was the only musician we had a piano right. and I think when I was about 9 or 10 my sister Jill brought home Peter Paula Mary's first album and I fell in love with them especially Mary who later became friends um, but their music was captivating and also they were very spiritual sounding group although they didn't admit it until much later in their career um, you know so you were
1: you were listening to music that was brought by you know your sisters and,
2: and yeah everyone. the kids my age were listening to Rolling Stones and the Beatles I was into Joni Mitchell and Peter Paul and Mary and Judy Collins I was like an old soul
1: but you were introduced to that music not on the radio you were no. introduced to that music because somebody brought an, my an, sister. an album <laughs> yeah your sister brought an album in. and from there you started. That music connected with you. And you start pursuing that music, and then when you had, uh, you know, the spiritual interaction and the dulcimer, then you said, okay, well, that music sort of matches the idea of what is connecting with me musically, and maybe this instrument is something I can utilize to express myself in that.
2: Yeah, I think anyone who's an artist uses their natural art to for release and clarity. I now use it as a meditation. I teach something called dulcimer meditation. So I teach it to people who play dulcimer and people who don't play dulcimer. They just get a dulcimer. And uh, I I sell a a certain kind and they learn how to uh, use the the dulcimer in in meditation. How do you
1: learn how to play dulcimer?
2: You take lessons from me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like that. No, well, how that. did you learn?
2: How, like, the, I taught myself. I, okay. had, which was a really terrific uh, thing to do, because I played piano by ear, and Dulcimer wasn't quite really, really known. So when I did approach the Dulcimer like a piano, I didn't have any limitations. So I didn't play it. Like when people buy a dulcimer now, they buy a dulcimer book or they take lessons on the internet or they find a dulcimer teacher. And it's still the same thing 51 years later. It's traditional it's from the Appalachian Mountains. And I was playing Somewhere in the Rainbow, Dion Warwick. Uh, I was writing my own songs. I was doing things on dulcimer nobody was doing because I didn't know any better. Um, and that's why I got a record deal. Because when I sent my tape to Folkway Records, he had dulcimer players on his label, but he immediately heard, uh, you know, wow, this guy's like playing this thing like a guitar. I've never heard this. It's not the Southern Appalachian. What is this? So that's what got me the reputation of being an innovative dulcimer player. And this is before dulcimer festivals and Facebook dulcimer groups. There was no internet. Um, So, I used the dulcimer as a guitar.
1: Yeah, that that makes a lot more sense because that in in listening to some of the uh, content, that's what I was going to ask you because it didn't sound to me like it's just. When I think of dulcimer, it to me, it, I associate that with background music in in a spiritual practice of some sorts. That's what I associate with. I never thought of it or or an instrument that adds like a sitar or something like that, like the Beatles would just throw in, you know, a little bit of that to make you feel like it's, uh, a, it's a little bit of a different type, style of music, but the way that you use it, you use it as like a lead instrument, which I thought was pretty unique and, and innovative. And that's why I was going to ask you because you're playing it like a guitar. So that, that, that makes a lot more right. sense. Um, You have a relationship or had, I'm not sure, with PBS. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Well, I had made a a lullaby record for children's music. I got into children's music um, in the early 80s um, because I heard that there was good money in it. And folk music, although lovely, uh, uh, unless you're a handful of people, You don't make anything. I mean, it's just well, you don't make anything in the music business now anyway. But folk music, you know, you could get a couple hundred bucks and play a club. You weren't getting twenty-four grand a night like Peter Paul Mary. So I was always, you know, under the gun looking for ways to make money. And someone said, Well, you know, uh children's music is really big, becoming really popular. So, I knew some kids' songs and I made this. So, the first one of the first records I made was a record called Lullabies for Little Dreamers. And it was a really beautiful record. Um, good songs, good songs. And um, I did it for a little record company out of New York. And someone gave that album to a guy and his wife. The guy is Rick Sigelco and his wife, I forget his wife's name, as a baby present for their daughter. And he was a producer at PBS. And he was putting together a show called Shining Time Station, Thomas the Tank Engine, which was going to star Ringo. And so he had hired, they hired some guy in New York to sing the theme song. And the guy blew it or didn't do a good job. So he tracked me down. He found me. And I went to New York and I met with him. And he he was a great, great guy. And he offered me the job, but he was only going to pay a set fee instead of a royalty. So I took it back to my music attorney, who obviously said, no, you don't do that. But, and Lloyd Remick's been my music attorney forever, that was the one time everything in my gut said, if you have to pay him, you're to do this show. Forget what the hell he's paying you. Do it and it was a really smart move because that Rick said that if you do it and the show is a hit you can write your own ticket and that's what happened. Hmm. So now I could sing in concert halls for 45 minutes children's songs um and get paid thousands of dollars. And then I started my own record company at the uh the, the um advice of my Jewish father who always had really good advice.
0: Yeah.
2: And uh Yeah, and and then I I always assumed that if I was rich and famous, I would be happy. I don't know if it's just being Jewish or it's being knowing stars in the music business or just being uh, somewhat of an idiot, but I worked really, really hard to be a millionaire and to get famous, and I got both, and I was so far from happy. But that was in my 30s. So, really, from 14 to 30, there was a lot of records and a lot of back and forth. But I got success. And, you know, when I got success, I kind of retired for a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and then, I, but, but, yeah.
1: Well, you, you also had a, a health scare.
2: Uh, well, that right. was later. All right. So, let,
1: let's, before we jump into that. I want to go back, and if you're not comfortable talking about this, that, that's fine. I just want to go back to the relationship with your parents mm-hmm. and then how that affected, because happiness, and I, I, I paralleled your journey too. Uh, my my goal in life was to become uh, famous, maybe as a byproduct, but it's, it's to become wealthy mm-hmm. and to be a millionaire, and I did the same thing. And I also felt miserable, and I was in a, in a and I was in a relationship that I think wasn't we weren't fulfilling e- each other, and uh, you know went through a divorce, and I was in Philly, and I moved to L.A. and and there was a lot of things going on in my life, and and there was a, a lot of connection to my youth with my parents, my my father, and my relationship with him, and the pursuit of financial well being or or wealth. I, I was lying to myself. I was always telling myself, like, what I'm doing now, I really like, I enjoy, and it's making me happy, and I'm making money. But it wasn't, it wasn't really true uh, until I started finding things that are more fulfilling to me where I was actually giving things and you know, maybe wasn't making as much money. And that return of that energy coming back, I started feeling my cup being filled, uh, so to speak. But there was still this whole relationship that I held on to from my parents. And it took me, you know, therapy and all that other stuff. It took a long time. still a work in progress to sort of overcome. So I want to go back to, you know, your your story of your relationship with your mother, your your stepmother, and then your father. And what was the effect
2: of that? My dad and I were best friends from day one. He also was an artist, but um, not as a living, and the woman he married, and there's a very interesting story about that, and I'll tell you about it. I didn't like, for the moment I met her, and she had to deal with me because I was my father's son, and you know in the Jewish world, that's king, right? Um, we, we just didn't mesh, and she had made a suggestion which my father should have listened to when they first got together. She said, we should all go to therapy. My father didn't believe in therapy. So it was a difficult relationship uh, with her. Her name was Elaine. I really believe um, in some ways she really did the best that she could with what she had. Um, And I was no, uh, what, what I did is really I ignored her. That's what I did, which was, Probably one of the meanest things I guess you could do to someone. I don't know. But uh, I had my reasons, and later my reasons were right. But then I left home. And um, when I came out to uh, California, and I had enough money, and I had a house, and I had a car, and I had fame, and I had all my money in the uh, stock market, right? And then the dot com bubble burst. And it started to go down the drain, and I got scared, and I moved to Florida, where my dad was living. And I bought a villa and lived there for 15 years until he died. Um, but the, the, the story I was going to tell you is that my father died um, when he was 90, and it was a couple of years later that um, Elaine died. And this is a really important story for everybody who was listening this is really a real, if you take anything away from this interview, this is what you want to get. I knew she was dying and I decided I was going to keep in touch with her after my dad died. No one expected that. And I went to get a pizza and I had heard from my sister that she was in hospice. So I called her without even thinking that it would be my last conversation. It didn't dawn on me, you know. She was always there, that kind of like, That little thorn, that little wood splinter under your nail, always there. And I talked to her, and it was very apparent. I mean, she was happy to hear from me. How you doing? How's, How's this? How's that? You know, all that small talk. And she said, I can't talk anymore because I'm having trouble breathing. And in that moment, I knew that that was the last time we were going to talk. But it just came on me. It was like this is it. And out of my mouth, almost as if it was like an out-of-body experience, I said to her, this is the big part, I said, you know, it's a shame that we never really hit it off or got along and it was difficult. But in the end, it more or less worked out okay, because we talked and and she said, Yes, it did. And she said, I love you. I said, I love you. And two days later, she died. And when I hung up the phone, I sat there frozen. I couldn't believe that in 40 or 50 years that they were married, in less than 30 seconds, we said to each other what we wanted to say for all of those years. And it, it transformed me. It really released me and I, I don't know whether it released her or not but you know it, it was a it was a brave daring and super intelligent thing that I did which was based on a higher power not me because that came out of my mouth I mean and like, oh, what do you say you know it was like I was watching myself do this and it was like you're apologizing to her you're saying gee i wish we had and i realized in that 30 seconds that all of those years were wasted in a sense because all people want is to be loved but i didn't i didn't have the sense at that age or maybe she didn't have the wisdom to say you know we're just really different people (laughs) but we have one thing in common we love your dad
1: Yeah. I, I, It's a beautiful story. I, I mean, giving, holding on to things like that, you know, I did that with my dad for a very long time Dude. and it took me, it took me a long time, a while to let go of that. And man, what, a, what a, I, I don't know how to say this, like cleansing, I no, think I, experience, that's what I would probably, that's the word that comes to to mind. And I talked to my dad every day from now on. Who knows who's what tomorrow brings for us? We're yeah. here now, and well, you can't change the past. We have lessons that we learn from that. But I think what you just said is so um, the 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 love that everything associated with seeking love and giving love at the end of the day that really is the common denominator between most people. And if you take all the bullshit out of the way. That's what it sort of comes down to, and it affected. It really affected my relationships, uh, and I think, and I, and I think what happened when my daughter was born, mm-hmm. all I, I learned I relearned what that is to love unconditionally and to receive that back, and I, yes. I don't think I've ever had that before from my parents. So it's, that, it's that was. A-
2: It's very difficult. Um, You know, the day my dad died, I didn't know he was going to die. He was in the hospital. I thought he was coming home, and I went to see him, and he looked really bad. And um, he was barely able to talk. Uh, But I did say, I love you, and he said, I love you, too. And then two hours later, he died, and I knew he died because I was somewhere else. And inside, I'm very intuitive, said, something's happened. And I called the hospital, and he said, they just passed. So at his funeral, the last words we said to each other was, I love you. And we did. There's nothing to resolve. Um, There was nothing really to resolve with Elaine. um, But the unconditional love is important. And I have a dog who I talk about in the book, Bosco, who um, taught me more about love than any human being. Because he's my kid. You know, uh, we go everywhere together. I take care of him. I love him. He loves me. When he's not feeling well, he wakes me up at 3 in the morning because he has diarrhea. (laughs) This this just happened last night. And I take him out like a baby that cries in a room. And, yeah, it's a pain to get out of bed. Thank God it's uh, California, you know. We don't freeze. (laughs) But I would do anything for this dog i'm spending a lot of money on him now because he's he's going through a a medical thing but he's getting better i wish i could find that in another human being in a partner and it's tough because we have egos interesting dogs don't (laughs) you know they're ego less and they don't worry like we do but these are all lessons and when i you know i'm a personal coach and when, when i coach people I tell them these stories about Elaine, I tell them stories about um, unconditional love and, and getting down to finding out who you are now. You know, the old Kevin and all the things that were done to me were done to me, but that's not who I have to be today. Right. So um, that's why I call it creative life design, because you can start today and redesign your life for what you want.
1: I, I want to dive into that in a, a little bit, and also talk about the music uh, business uh, or lack of business. However, however you want to uh, identify and define that. But yeah. l- let me l- let me go back to the health scare. Okay, uh, and I know that came later, but I, I feel and based on you know connecting with your content a little bit, I feel that there was a pivotal moment in your life which, which may have led to you know you wanting. To, the coaching and all that stuff did that did that come out from uh yeah. you know having the health scare maybe you can talk a little bit about that
2: so in 2013 or around 14 my dad died i had a little business that went belly up and my nine-year relationship ended and i was uh in not great financial shape because i had also invested in real estate and that had bombed Uh, and I didn't really have a music career because I had retired from it and the internet had come along and people were downloading music. So no one was really buying many CDs. I wasn't touring because people weren't paying a lot of money. It was just a a rough time. So I moved to Kansas where my sister lived and I was going to live with her until I figured out what I was going to do next. And when I got there, I just went, I set up doctor appointments like, you know, the dentist and the this and the that. And because I lived in Florida, I went to a dermatologist. And this guy basically said that there's a little dark freckle on your nose. It doesn't look so normal. And then a couple weeks or months later, um, they took a biopsy and they said, well, it's in situ, which means that it hasn't really gotten deep into the skin as skin cancer But they were wrong. It had. Uh, And then uh, I think about a month or two later, I was shaving and I found a lump under my chin and my gut sank. And I went to another doctor. And long story short, I ended up having stage three melanoma. So there are four stages to melanoma. And there's no, as of today, there's no cure for it my particular type of melanoma. So it's not like you can do chemo and radiate. You know, it's like, no, it's a death sentence. But I had to go, I had, (laughs) I had to educate myself because um, some of the oncologists, I saw four of them in Kansas, including the top one, supposedly. And what they were telling me just didn't make any sense. They wanted to do things to me. And I just, every being of Every ounce of my being just said, no way. So I got on the internet and I found an oncologist, to make a long story short, who finally agreed with me and said, let's not do anything like that. You know, it, you know, we removed the two little places we found and we scanned your body and there's no signs of existing cancer. If it comes back, it'll probably come back within a year. And then that's it. You know, you have a couple of years. So I waited a year and I thought, you know, they gave me a 70% chance of this coming back and dying. It's a pretty big, so, you know, like, is this something like a Peggy Lee song? Is that all there is? (laughs) So you have records, so you have fans, so you had money, so you had fame. Now you're going to be dead. And you're still miserable. You're unhappy. You're always chasing money. I was chasing sex, which I still like to chase by the way. <laughs> That's a good thing to me in my exactly like that. Um, but it was like I was miserable. I was frightened, I was miserable. I had to find alternative I had to find people who uh, healed cancer without Western ideas, and I had to sort through all the stuff. And when a year was up, I went to my oncologist and I said, "I'm going to California I'm going back to San Diego." because i've had it i'm not i'm not going through this and um he said well you'll know if you're sick and if you need somebody i'll recommend someone and i found an apartment for a thousand dollars a month which is unheard of as you can imagine (laughs) with parking and laundry and uh i packed my jeep and my dog and my dulcimers and some other stuff and i drove for three days to california and when i got here I just thought to myself, uh, I'm just going to be. But during that time period in Kansas, I had a very, very deep dive spiritually. And very strange things happened. So one of the things that happened is while I was in my apartment with bandages all over my face, I saw a Netflix movie called Awake about Yogananda, who I'd heard of, Mm -hmm. And I watched it, and then something said I should look for his self-realization church. But but I knew there wasn't anyone in Kansas. I knew there'd be some in California. But I found one in Kansas, actually right across the street, which was the weirdest thing, because I'd driven by this this little church, didn't have a sign outside of it. Every day, never knew. And I went there, and that's where I learned about self-realization, which is really finding out that everything is gone basically and i got home one day from one of those services and i googled self-realization and two names popped up one was ramana maharshi who was a, a very revered, a revered sage from india who taught self-realization on duality and an author by the name of robert Wolfe, who had written a book so when i got to san diego i called robert and i said can i come up and just see you and he said yeah so i drove four hours up to ojai and uh i brought my dulcimer and i sang him a song i wrote called um, adrift which you can hear it's on youtube you know it's on my album the deviant dulcimerist and he said to me no one's ever done that before and i said what do you mean and he said no one's come here and played." and i said what he, people come here so i had no idea that people from jim carrey to other people known and unknown sought this guy out that he was a, a spiritual teacher i had no point. i just thought he wrote a book because he didn't look like a guru
0: <laughs>
2: he didn't act like a guru he didn't have any bullshit to him he was just a, a thin, very plain spoken soft-spoken guy he just had a conversation like this and he introduced me to non-duality. I kind of got it. Kind of got it. Non-duality means that everything is God or everything is that doing what it does. But it didn't connect 100%. And it drove me nuts for about a year or two. And I decided to drive back up there and go to one of his non-duality meetings in Ohio at the Christian, uh, Christian Murdy Center. And I asked the whole group, the whole table of people who were non-dual people, uh, so to speak, they were studying it, and Robert was there. I said, okay, I get everything is God, so what do you do with it? And no one could tell me. No one could, you know, I said, okay, so everything's God, now what? And no one could tell me. And I drove Robert back to his apartment, and he said, I want you to come inside, I want to tell you about something. And I went inside, and... He said that there's something else beyond non-duality. And I said, "Oh, <laughs> now you're telling me there's something beyond God? Okay, I got I got to hear this one." And he introduced me to something called Ajata, and uh, Ajata is what Ramana Maharshi and Mopan people with wisdom call the ultimate teaching, and that made absolute sense. That was what I had sensed as a child. I had known, but. I didn't know what it was or where it was. And here it was. And then I said, oh, my God, I got it. I got a job. I teach. I teach, you know, (laughs) a jada really isn't a teaching because uh, of the nature of what a jada is, which basically means that everything is empty. So there's nothing to teach. There's no one to teach and all that kind of stuff. But in this dream experience, it's taught. So I teach that based on Robert's books because he passed away. Um, two weeks after his last book came out. But he was a brilliant really, teacher. I don't know whether you've ever heard of him, but mm-hmm. more and more people are discovering Robert. And He was he was like, um, he was a friend, but I, I i didn't come to him as a, I, if I knew who he was, that he was a, a big deal, I wouldn't have gone and seen him. Mm-hmm. I just thought he wrote a book.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's an incredible journey, and you never know, and I think like one of the lessons that I got from that is taking action opens up opportunities that you may not be aware that are there for you. They're already there, and you know we we talk a lot about law of attraction and these kind of things. And I think people don't misunderstand the, that whole connection. Yes, there is a connection, to source. Yes, there's vibrational energy. Yes, there's a connection uh, to frequency and all that stuff, but you you have to participate in that so you take an action like you did i think if you would have just read the book and not taken the action to actually go and play and visit maybe things would be different uh today so
2: you know what uh, the funny story that i went up to see him and i always had to get a hotel because it was a long drive for me and i got there in the afternoon and i called him and i said so what time do you want me to take you to dinner and he said well maybe five and he said i'm I'm going to go for a walk. Do you want to come for a walk with me? And I was tired. And I said, you know what? I said, give me like 15 minutes. Let me think about it. But I'll probably just pick you up for dinner. And then he said, okay. And I laid back down on the bed. And this thought came to me. <laughs> it's like, when a spiritual teacher asks you to take a walk, get the hell off the bed. I don't care how tired you are. You go. Yeah. Oh, no, walk. I think <laughs> I walk like two, three miles every day. But he answered in in the first five minutes, every question I ever had with one statement.
1: That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. You know, I I wanted to ask you, uh, when you were going through uh, your melanoma and uh, cancer experience, did you uh, engage in in cannabis use?
2: No. Mm -hmm. Was that something that was recommended to you in any way? No, no. I, you know, here in California, you can walk in anywhere and just get it right. And because I'm a singer, I don't like to smoke, smoke, Mm -hmm. although I've tried gummies and stuff like that. But I have a very sensitive kind of system. So if someone smokes a joint or cannabis uh, and they get mildly high, I get like really loopy. Yeah. And um, I had a friend come over Um one time when I had a, a a very potent joint and I, I was, I took a couple puffs of it and um, it, it kind of choked me a little bit. And um, I couldn't have sex for like weeks. I was just like, <laughs> I thought I'm not touching this stuff, <laughs> but I, I have my little cigarettes here, but I rarely smoke that stuff. Yeah, My mind, if you were to crawl into my mind, it's, it's busier than any psychedelic experience. When you get into a Jada, you don't you don't need um, unless you're doing it for medicinal reasons. You don't need to. That that's your release. That's your let go. Yeah. But what well, I, I, w- yeah.
1: I was I was asking for medicinal purposes, but yeah, I mean for spiritual no, no practices. Yeah. yeah. Because, uh, and by the way, you know, not 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 plugging my cup, but we we have a test. Uh, my company does genetic testing specifically for your endocannabinoid system. So some people definitely have these responses to uh-huh. phytocannabinoids based on their genetic predispositions. They get epigenetically triggered while you're consuming some of those phytocannabinoids. Uh-huh. So that, that's why I was uh, I was asking. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that that makes sense. And people use it in spiritual practices too. And oh, yeah. as you said, you don't have to smoke and vape or, or a sublingually. Uh, okay, well, that, that makes sense. Going back to the music business, um, you recorded a few albums, right? <laughs> like of them, yeah. Right. This day so, two
2: days ago.
1: Congrats. I, I was, so, this, like, the music business has changed so much um, from, you know, there was some vinyl, you can, there were some CDs. Even, even that was interesting because I, I came from the record store uh, kind of uh, business. But now, With streaming and downloads and all these different things. Like, okay, you have 50 plus albums, but what do you, what do you do? Like, how do you, how do you generate revenue from that? Because you get, it's not like radio play like it used to be, you get a nickel for your song or whatever.
2: How's the, I've been with a, a distributing company called CD Baby for years. So I've done really well with them and they get it out to all the, YouTubes and the this is and the thats the problem and and a blessing in a way is that what happened is uh, they figured out that they could get all these musicians who are not business people to agree to pay them something not really knowing exactly how much but they could they could be found anywhere on the internet so they are instant fame. So that's like saying, uh, I'm going to, you're a little guppy in the ocean, but at least you're in the ocean. So then people like Taylor Swift and all these other people figured out that they could sell a million, they could have a million downloads and still make nothing. Right. So this, uh, last album i just made i finished it on monday actually it's a lullaby instrumental dulcimer album called dulcimer dreamland i mentioned it on facebook and someone said um, you know where can i stream it and i thought to myself you know i i want to be paid sure so i'm i'm doing it not as a physical album but i'm doing it on Bandcamp. So okay, you can download the artwork, the liner notes, which I loved writing, the tuning, of the dulcimer and have an experience and charge 20, 25 bucks. Um, and I, it'll eventually, I guess, get streamed. But if you want the art experience, how did I come to write this album? Why did John Coltrane influence this record? album? You know, I have pictures of the coffee house that I hung out at where I was rehearsing I have pictures of me and my dog in the recording studio. I have pictures of me and my yellow surfboard that influenced certain things. So that when you get it on Bandcamp, you can say, "Oh wow, you know, I'm part of how he woke up at four in the morning and decided to make this record, and you know, the story of how the first engineer completely screwed the whole record up and I had to go to a different studio." And so the whole story, because that that's the great part about having LPs. I'm a big LP guy. Me too is liner notes yeah pictures but because i don't tour because there's not enough money out there to pay you you know the, the thing now is we'll give you 70 percent of the door well if i come up to la i mean that's only a two-hour trip you know <laughs> yeah so if you're uh, Brandy Carlisle and, and Joni Mitchell, you, you know you're you're selling tickets. But a guy right. like me, people are used to just downloading stuff for free. So there really is no business if you can manage the tour or to play out. Then you can make money on merchandise. I don't honestly know how people are doing it these days. I'm very lucky that I was there during cassettes and albums and CDs and and all of that, you know, uh, and I had my own record label. Right. But on the positive side of it is I can put something up on YouTube and not monetize it, and someone discovers me, even as a coach. You know, They, they I've had clients sure. discover me playing the dulcimer and go, wow, I want to learn that. Uh, I had one guy write to me. He says, you know, I've, I've been following your career for years, but I really like what you're doing now, which is practically nothing. It's just <laughs> healthy meditation. So you just if you're an artist, you just keep doing it. You yeah. Just do, it do it and do it and do it. And however it happens. But you did you did tour uh, all over the oh yeah yeah with, with that. Did you tour
1: as a a solo performing artist or did you also um, did you also play with other bands as a as like a, no, a, a
2: company? Never, no, never did well, that. I had a backup musicians, but I was always right. a It's always your gig. Did
1: you open for anybody ever? Like, uh... you
2: know, um, occasionally I would, occasionally I would, but when I started to play big venues, it wasn't the situation where there was an opening act. It was just me. Yeah. So
1: I, I'm trying to like I, I'm trying I'm curious how to. Would you open, like, would it be a jazz uh,
2: club, or w- would it be like a- Now, remember the main point in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, the folk club? Yeah, of course, yeah. Everyone played there, Jack Brown, Joni Mitch. So yeah. there I would open up for headlining acts. But that was, what, 200 seats? I mean, it was the place to play back then. Sometimes I would get booked at folk festivals, and of course there were many other performers there. Um, but mostly I did a lot of my touring was through a thing that used to exist called community concerts and they would book you in towns in remote little places all over the country. So they would bring music into like, you know, a little bow dunk town at the high school yeah. end, and the place would be packed because I, I was, except for the high school basketball night, I was the attraction. And you know, I was what was talked about in the diners with the farmers the next morning. We heard it, and cool. they, they I went out after every show and signed those c d s and got the money and uh, hotel to hotel to hotel. The other way I toured, which was interesting. there were two other ways that I did it. one was as a children's performer, big theaters in order to get grants, have to have an educational department so I was part of the educational system in that way. And then one day I thought, you know, there's a lot of places I want to go, but I can't afford to like Alaska and new Orleans and all these other places, Colorado. So I'm going to book libraries. This was before everyone was doing them. (laughs) And I got Alaska airlines to sponsor me. And I had won uh, awards from the library association. So they would fly me up to Alaska and then they'd fly me here and they'd fly me there. And I played library. Sometimes there were four people and sometimes there were a lot of people. Um, but I got to see all those places and I made money at it. I think, you know, well, it didn't cost me anything because the hotels were paid for so it. Right. And the, uh, but I, I, Sitka, Alaska was like something out of a dream. It's like the Riviera of Alaska, the New Orleans. Oh my God the woman took me with well, the library and the head library because there's like a main central library and then there's all these other little libraries from the main branch so you would come in through the main branch and then they would take you to all the 10 or 12 other right so she took me right after that big uh, i think it was katrina and she yeah. told me like literally i wrote a song about it actually uh refrigerators and trees yeah you know and and she would say that used to be a graveyard and that gravestone belongs six miles up the road, and because in New Orleans, there's everything is below sea like, Right. It was a fat. Oh my God, I love New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was
1: going to ask you what are some of the, your favorite places to play. New Orleans, uh,
2: um, Colorado was absolutely gorgeous. Um, I played. Uh, oh, I forget where it, it's new. It was near Telluride. It, it wasn't Red Rocks, right? No. Yeah, I mean, you no, know, But a lot of touring. Uh, I write in the book about an experience where I was on the road and like, getting standing ovations, getting paid a lot of money, selling a lot of product, and coming back to my hotel room and feeling miserable and not knowing why. I wrote the story about that. It was with the Red Hat Society when we played the, the theater. Originally premiered The Wizard of Oz. I think it was in Wisconsin, but there was somewhere out there. So, yeah, the road, you know, the road's a tough life. But now I live in a place that's perfect because I'm 10 minutes from the ocean. I'm 40 minutes from the mountains. San Diego is like, you know, it's, it's like amazing.
1: It's a beautiful place. Uh, if somebody wants to engage you for coaching, mm-hmm. what what should they expect? Like, what type of, who are the people that, that are align with you? And what do they, uh, what what type of challenges, what are they trying to overcome and how, how do you address it with them?
2: How I got into coaching is someone suggested that I become a coach, a life coach, and I didn't even know what it was. I had never heard of it. And he said, you figured out how to change your life because the three questions and the, the, the main parts of my book is what matters. Why does it matter to you? And what are you going to do about it? So I was, fought, I was faced with literally a death sentence and maybe a year or two to live. Of course, that was seven, eight, nine years ago. You know, nothing's ever had come back, thankfully. Um, but I took the bull by the horns and I said, I'm shaking my life up. And if I only have two years, I'm living it my way. And I figured out how to do it. I was almost broke and I managed to figure out a way to live in San Diego, one of the most expensive cities in the country. And I'm still in an apartment that's $1,000 a month. You know? <laughs> so the first question I ask any potential client is, what don't you want in your life anymore? Because most people don't even know that. Well, what don't you want in your life? Yeah, what don't you want? What do you really want? Interesting you to? question. Because most people ask, what do you want in your life? And I yeah, find I, it I don't care what you want right now. I want to know if you know what don't you want. I don't want to be in debt, in credit card debt. Okay. Are you sure you don't want that? Yeah. All right. What do you want? Well, I want this. Okay, so now we know what you don't want. We know what you do want. Now let's understand why you want what you want. Why do you want a lot of money? What are you looking for? It's not the money. People think it's money. It's not money. You want what, it's the feeling that money gives you, which is freedom.
1: Freedom, yeah.
2: So you can have freedom and be cheap. There's a lot of people who don't have a lot of money in this town that are living and smiling here in Ocean Beach. I, and i know people with a shitload of money that have frowns on their faces all the time yeah. so if you want the feeling well that's easy to get so i teach people how to get clear on what they want and then i teach them the process um, in the book there's stuff about that but there's tools and mm. you use it's like you got to get out of your mind you need to eat well you need to hike you know you need to love yourself i mean a, a lot of my female clients um i mean they all cry in the beginning because i ask them almost in a sense to write a love letter to themselves and you know they come back and they just like just tears i never knew i was never good you know i, I had a client recently i won't mention her name because everything is private but nothing she could ever do was good enough yeah, but she was very religious, and so I I asked her the question. I said, "Well, do you believe in Jesus?" And she said, "Oh yes." I said, "Do you believe that Jesus is inside you?" And she said, "Yeah." I said, "Well, you know, I've never I'm not a Jesus guy, I and mean, I thought he was an interesting guy. But you know, being raised Jewish, not practicing Judaism, but I'm not really a Christian. I'm not a Christian. But it only makes sense to me that if Jesus is inside you, how imperfect could you possibly be?" And her whole life changed. So I have a way of kind of tuning into people um, and listening deeply to what they're saying. Often it's not what they think they're saying. And, you know, today I was with a client and I said, so what I'm hearing is fear. And she went, oh my God, you're right. I said, let's look at the fear. What do you, you know, you're living in the future. You have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. So at the end of every session, all of my clients always look light and they're like, they're refreshed. It's like they've taken a shot. And, and that's what I, that's why I love to do what I do with the Dulcie meditation. It's a very simple process of learning to play the dulcimer, which is super, super easy. And, um, uh, what 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 that does is it attracts it gets the mind involved in listening to the music, which gives you the opportunity to ask your inner self, "What do I need to know?"
1: Yeah, it's brilliant. I love that approach. All right, so I have a few questions I ask all uh, my guests. I have a music question for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, one year, you get to pick your five albums that you want to listen to. and You can only listen to those five albums in one year. What would they be? And preface, if you don't remember the name of the album, it's fine. You can just say this is the artist's album of whatever, whatever. And also to preface, people asked me this question before, and I'm like, these are my five albums right now. Tomorrow, I could pick you know, a different one or two. So just caption a moment in time.
2: Well, the first one would be Joni Mitchell's Blue. Um, the second would probably be, uh, I don't remember the name of the artist, but it's a jazz album from France based on movie themes. Uh, the third one would be, interestingly enough, I've been listening to Peter, Paul and Mary's Late Again album, which is a, almost like an electric album. Um anything by Thelonious monk and believe it or not after 51 albums one of my favorite albums that i I've, I've ever made is called the deviant dulcimer so it's the only album of mine i listen to because it's okay. and it's fun i listen to that quite often which is quite surprising because i usually don't listen to my own music yeah it's been a vibe that i have sort of spinning around the, the place these days
1: very cool um, do you remember what the very first concert you ever attended was?
2: Yep. It was well, like Paul and Mary. Mary at the Academy of Music in Philadelphia, and the ticket was $2.50. And I'll tell you the reason I know. Um, I saved the ticket, but I remember it was right next to a pole in the upper balcony, top top. And one day I got a, a chance to sing at the Academy of Music, and I couldn't believe it i was singing actually with the philadelphia orchestra and during the sound check before they let anybody in i put the dulcimer on the chair on stage and i went up to that seat i remember the pole and i looked down on the stage and i saw my dulcimer and i went oh my god i can't believe you're here because in philly that was the place that's the yeah place. oh yeah but that's super a rese- respectful place like Play, sp-
1: playing an academy of music is like that's you know, you're you've
2: oh reached God. a certain it's pinnacle That's Unbelievable. Amazing. Unbelievable.
1: All right. So I have a final bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up.
2: Oh well, it was a small bedroom. I probably was too young to have it painted, but I always painted my bedroom walls. Um I kept the door shut a lot. I pulled the drawer out so that no one could get it. My and my bedroom looked over the the driveway. And but any any posters,
1: art on the wall, anything that's distinguishable that you can remember.
2: I remember a stuffed monkey called Zippy, but <laughs> that's all I remember. I was mostly terrorized. <laughs> so I did some. I acted out in some very strange ways, but that was uh, my fate for that time um yeah Mm -hmm.
1: got it well
2: kevin uh
1: before i let you go please share how people can engage with you where they can get your book where they can get your content your music and coaching whatever you want to share
2: well all of that you can find on my website kevinroth.org and so if people hear this and they're intrigued I do a, a a complimentary session with you just to get to know you and answer any questions you have. And the Between the notes is on Amazon. It's on between the notes and you can find all that stuff. And I think I have a course online if you can't afford personal coaching. Um, so all of it's on kevinroth.org.
1: Great. Kevin, thank you so much for your time. It's been enlightening and I appreciate uh, you sharing and, uh, no, personal information is great, man. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. <laughs> this is your life, Kevin. Roth. the weird life, exactly. <laughs> no weirder it's than beautiful. anyone else's, as it turns out.
1: Not at all. Not at all. Normal. Yeah. Uh, Normal is boring. So.
2: Yeah. Do you know We're the place to wear? There's a, a a comedian, Jessica. She's a Jewish lesbian. She's hysterical. Kirsten. And she does a bit about performing in Jewish. Old age homes. You have. I'll. will try and find the link and send it. To you. But your life is like. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's, that was my life and everyone else's life. So when she you know, when she plays with the audience and she, she does a lot of audience work, often I'll hear. You're you're, you're Jewish, aren't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Or, yes. you, you know, nails Christians too. She goes. Oh my God. You're like a really devout Christian, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, very funny lady, Jessica Kirsten.
1: All right. Thank you again. Appreciate your time. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey,
2: everyone. It's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, Come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.